I'm Taylor, and you're listening to the Hopeless Sports Magnet Podcast. It is officially game week of week one of college football, and I could not be more excited, not only because I'm a Georgia fan, but just because football's back, fans are back, the pedigree is back, the games just feel like they matter that much more this year, just because we know we have a full schedule ahead of us, and we know, like I said, fans are going to be back in the stands, and Everybody's just settled in and ready for this season to get underway. And I feel like if I talk any louder, I'm going to make sure to keep my voice a little bit down this episode because if I get loud, I might run through a wall like the Kool-Aid man. And I don't want to injure myself prior to 7.30 on Saturday. So... We'll save, we'll save UGA Clemson for a little bit later in the show. I kind of want to save the best for last in that regard. So to jump right in here, game one of some of the marquee matchups for this week, Boise State versus UCF. Both of these teams have new head coaches. You have Gus Malzahn coming from Florida and Andy Avalos taking over after Josh Heupel went to take the Tennessee job. So there's kind of a little bit of uncertainty for both of these kind of group of five powerhouses, if you will. But what there's lacking in coaching experience at that specific un- those these specific universities is more than made up for in an experience from both starting quarterbacks. Dylan Gabriel feels like he has it feels like he's been there at UCF for over a century at this point, and then you have Hank Backmeyer. Who also got who was the primary starting quarterback for Boise State last season. Both of these teams, in typical Group of Five fashion, have high octane offenses. They're going to put up a lot of points. They're going to use tempo, and they're going to put the ball in the end zone before you can even get your defense set up. And with that being said, I think that makes kind of the key to this game being which defense can show some way to contain the big plays, get a little bit of pressure on the quarterback, not let either one of these quarterbacks just kind of sit back in the pocket and pick apart defenses. And I'll be interested to see as well how much of a typical Gus Malzahn offense like we've seen at Auburn is used at UCF or if it stays very pass-heavy as it was prior to – Josh Heupel leaving to get to head to Tennessee. Boise State has managed to stay consistent as one of the better teams in Group of Five, even since multiple head coaches have left. You've got the recent head coach leaving even after Chris Peterson left. There was still plenty of consistency there, but it's it's as if if you look at any of the group of five teams, they're always they always seem to be in the mix, and I expect that to continue in this season. If I had to pick one of the defenses that's going to get one some stops, 
it sounds like if you just look if you're looking purely at statistics from last season, you're gonna go with Boise State because UCF was actually dead last in the AAC in total defense. They gave up a ton of big plays and a ton of whether it's run or pass, they were it was just big play after big play and they struggled to really play any kind of complimentary football on that side of the ball. However, along with Gus Malzahn taking over as head coach, there's quite a few Auburn transfers but that are on both sides of the ball. But m- most of all, Big Cat Bryant, who was one of the premier defensive linemen for Auburn last year, comes over. I think he provides the boost in terms of pass defense that UCF needs with losing Richie Grant in the back end of the defense. I think the best way to comp to help out a younger second inexperienced secondary is to be able to get pressure on the quarterback. And I think that's kind of what Bryant brings to the table here. The biggest guy that that young secondary is going to have to worry about on Boise state side is Khalil Shakur. He was a, had over a thousand yards receiving last year. He is definitely a vertical threat receiver and the chemistry that him and Hank Backmeyer have heading back to last season could prove to be key in this game as well. I see this being very much a game of a a typical group of five game, a lot of high scoring, but the team that's going to win is going to be the team that it, it gets to that one chance where you get somebody behind the chains and it's third and long third uh, in that third and 10, third and 12 range which team is going to be able to get a stop or create a turnover in that regard. And I think some of the talent coming over from Auburn is going to give UCF the edge in that department. And and because of that, I have UCF winning this game. I believe the spread is at five points, but I'm giving them a 10-point victory with a score of 45-35. to 35. The next game I want to talk about is an interconference, big t- intra-conference, I should say, Big Ten matchup between Ohio State and Minnesota. This is a big game for P.J. Fleck and Minnesota. He came over from Western Michigan, had that great team with guys like Tyler Johnson and Rashad Bateman. Tanner Morgan is still manning the quarterback position, but th- this is definitely a year where if Minnesota wants to take the next step, they need to show what they can do in games like this. They don't necessarily have to beat Ohio State, but I think they definitely need to give them a run for their money and show that they can be competitive against any team in the country. And Ohio State definitely in the Big Ten is sets that mark as the team to beat, over whether they've had Urban Meyer at the helm or Ryan Day at the helm or even Jim Tressel at the helm, if you want to go that far back. And as for Ohio State, this is very much a transition year for them. They lost the entire linebacking core. They lost Sean Wade to the NFL draft as well. They lost Trey Sermon and Justin Fields and I believe a few offensive linemen as well. Where the experience lies is in the receiving core. 
Chris Olave is coming back. Garrett Wilson is coming back. And they've also got a guy by the name of Marvin Harrison Jr. that has a chance to be another tremendous receiver for them. So with C.J. Stroud, a true freshman starting at quarterback, that's kind of as good as you want to get as far as getting help from receivers as you have guys that made tremendous plays against a top-notch Clemson defense in the semifinal game last year. The only negative side of that is of this quarterback situation and this kind of offensive makeup as a whole is with Trey Sermon gone, you're relying on either Master Teague or Travion Henderson, who will Teague is a sophomore, and then Travion Henderson is a freshman, former number one overall running back recruit for the 2021 class. You might be asking, why does that come into play so much with that tandem? Not only in terms of the read option exchange on the RPOs, that's that affects pass protection, and you the last thing you want is a defense a defender getting a clear shot at the quarterback because there's a miscommunication in terms of protection and how to line up. It's something that's I think very often is overlooked and is something that get adds value to the term game manager quarterback. I know that that's kind of used as a derogatory term towards quarterbacks that don't have the most arm talent in the world, but it's the little things like that, that even some of these guys like Stroud, who have tremendous arm talent, tremendous athletic ability, that they kind of struggle with and limits them being successful at the collegiate level, at the Power 5 level, for sure. But despite the lack of experience, despite the experience of Tanner Morgan at quarterback for Minnesota, and across a lot of that offensive line that had a very good running attack last year, I think there's just too much talent, too much of a talent gap between the two schools. And I look for Chris Olave to have a monster game this Thursday night. And Ohio State really sets the tone for what its competitors in the Big Ten need with the kind of level that they need to play at. Ohio State 45, Minnesota 24. Next game I want to mention is another intra-conference game. This time it's in the ACC. It's between North Carolina and Virginia Tech. This game is going to be played in Blacksburg with one of the one of the uh, I think one of the better home field advantages in all of college football. The last time these teams played, it was very much a COVID affected outcome. Virginia Tech was playing extremely shorthanded. Caleb Farley opted out. And then on top of that, Virginia Tech was really hit hard by a massive COVID wave that took out a good chunk of the roster to the point to where I believe they were playing linebackers at safety and just guys out of position just to kind of get 11 guys on the field and it just didn't end well. North Carolina was able to put up a massive amount of points and run the ball all over a shorthanded Virginia Tech defense. I think it's going to be very different this time around. Virginia Tech has notoriously had very strong defenses and has been able to not necessarily upset 
opponents like this, but they're able to really keep it a game. I think back to when they played Virginia Tech. When well, when Virginia Tech played Ohio State a few years ago, and they really stayed in that game until after halftime, until their starting quarterback, I believe, got his ribs broken or something like that. But the guy that I think is the difference maker that puts North Carolina over the top in this game is Josh Downs. He is a very heavily recruited wide receiver for them that's now with Deami Brown and Daz Newsom out. He takes the reins as the number one receiver in this Mac Brown offense. And it's another year of experience under the belt of Sam Howell, who I think has a chance to be a Heisman candidate heading into this season. And I think those two will be firing on all cylinders. And when it comes down to those key times where you got to move the chains or hit a big play, I think Sam Howell shows the kind of player that he's capable of being and makes those plays. And North Carolina, I have them winning this game 35-20. to 20. A little bit lower scoring at first just because of the defense that Virginia Tech's going to play, but very much a second-half explosion kind of thing with the weapons that North Carolina has on the offensive side of the ball. Now we have yet another Big Ten matchup. This is going to be between Penn State and Wisconsin. I think this is going to be a very underrated game, mainly because of how much I think people are going to underestimate Penn State heading into this game just solely by looking at their record from last season, despite the fact that no, I don't think everybody fully realized how limited they were in terms of talent and depth because they had to play guys like they had to play just young guys that didn't have a lot of experience. A lot of their better players either had injuries or opted out, and it really showed Early on in the season, they started out with a very poor record, and then I believe they started out 0-5 and and then finished 4-5, and so they were able to find a bit of a rhythm in the second half of the season, and hopefully, for their sake, they can carry that into this season. The guy that I think this game really that this really affects the outcome of this game more than anything else is Sean Clifford. Is this the the season where he finally gets it together is this new offense that Penn State is rolling out going to play to his skill set more is he going to be able to hit some of these weapons that Penn State has on offense how will the loss of Pat Fryermuth affect the passing attack these are some of these questions that I think we're going to get the answer to very early in this game and I think how the first few possessions are for Penn State on the offensive side are really going to show us what the rest of Penn State's season is going to look like. And I think that it's 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 you you don't it's it's the obvious case if you don't want to have a knee-jerk reaction, but James Franklin is kind of in that position as a coach to where if he doesn't really show a ton of improvement at this point in his tenure with how he's had a solid amount of time since his days at Vanderbilt to where if he's going to turn Penn State into the powerhouse in the Big Ten, to the into the team that's supposed to 
compete with Ohio State. That's why they hired him in the first place. This is when he needs to really start showing some results instead of projecting towards the future. As far as Wisconsin goes, talked about in the previous episode that you guys can check out as well, that I see them as a sleeper team in the Big Ten, possibly being the team that has the best chance at challenging Ohio State. And that's because of their tremendous young quarterback named Grand Mertz. He was very solid to start last season, and then it's the question is whether teams figured him out or how much of it was because of a shoulder issue that was reportedly nagging him throughout much of the second half of last season. The weirdest thing with Wisconsin, as I also mentioned in the last episode, is they don't have the typical bell cow running back we're used to having. They don't have a, a, a really a Jonathan Taylor type running back, but they're going to be running a running back by committee kind of team, and they're going to throw the ball around with some of these receivers that have really developed a very solid amount of chemistry with Mertz. I look for Jake Ferguson to have some very big first down catches and to be the the uh, safety blanket for Graham Mertz as they go up against a team like Penn State that's known for having tremendous NFL caliber linebackers. The other guy, the guy that's uh, on the other side of the ball for Wisconsin that I look to really break out is Nick Herbig. He's reportedly been tearing it up in spring ball. He's a sophomore that got some playing time as a freshman, but now with more time under his belt, I think he's really going to show why the the TJ Watt comparisons are out there for him in that Jack linebacker spot for them. And I look for him to be a guy that makes the game-deciding play, if you will, whether it's in the third quarter to where it allows Wisconsin to pull away, or maybe it's comes down to the last possession and he makes the play. I I just I sense a strip sack coming from him. We know that Sean Clifford has had turnover issues in the past, and I feel like Herbig is the guy that if that's those tendencies are gonna reemerge for Clifford, he's gonna be the guy that's gonna be the one to kind of put him in a situation to make a mistake, if you will. So with that being said, I have Wisconsin winning this one. 41-24 with Graham Mertz having one heck of a game as well. Very similar to Sam Howell. The last game I want to talk about before we go to UGA Clemson is the game that I feel like the non-SEC media has tried to do everything they can to make it seem like it's going to be a competitive game when I find a hard time believing it's going to be the case, and that is the kickoff game in Atlanta between Alabama and Miami. Derek King is playing in this game after tearing his ACL in Miami's bowl game back in January. So he's only got around a seven-month recovery time, and he's going to have to go back and face the reigning national champs in it is a neutral site, but I think it's a lot more of an it's gonna be a lot more of an Alabama home game than a neutral site game. Since as I believe at this point, Nick Saban has rented out an entire wing of Mercedes Benz Stadium at this point. 
probably transferred the lease over from Georgia from the Georgia Dome very seamlessly. But the 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 big thing for this game is you you know Alabama's gonna find a way to put up points. It's a matter of who is going to be the new weapon that emerges, who is going to be the guy that becomes Bryce Young's go-to target the way that Devontae Smith was for Mac Jones or Amari Cooper was for A.J. McCarron or Julio Jones was for Greg McElroy. And the guy that I see coming out on top for him is Ajay Hall, who's gotten a lot of comparisons from Nick Saban himself to Julio Jones, he's reportedly said he's Julio with better hands and better route running. How that's humanly possible, I don't know. He is a freshman, so the only thing holding him back at this point, going back to spring ball, is they're trying to get him more accustomed to having being able to line him up in different spots rather than just play him solely on the outside like he did in high school. But... Also, in terms of the Bama offense, I look for Brian Robinson to be very key in this game as well. I I just think that with having a young quarterback like Bama does, it's the, you're going to want to play it safe and run the ball. Plus, I think Nick Saban has talked about kind of returning to old school Bama in terms of we're going to play defense and run the ball. And with the returning defense that Alabama has, with guys like Malachi Moore, Christian Harris, Will Anderson all coming back, I wouldn't blame them. They also added Henry Toto as a Tennessee transfer who now takes over as the middle linebacker with Christian Harris moving to the Will linebacker spot. We'll see how how quickly that transition is made, How if it, if it affects any bit of the... Uh, kind of responsibilities and obviously if you're playing that high of level you go into your play your gap responsibilities and things like that kind of more intricate scheme ideas if there's any bit of a transition period there with Miami you do still have De'Eric King who is a tremendously talented quarterback but I just don't trust a Miami defense to get stops when you lose not only Quincy Roche, but also Jalen Phillips. You lose your two biggest pass rushers, your two guys that have the best shot at keeping your team in the game, creating chaos for the Alabama offense. They're gone. And I think there's just going to increase the talent gap that much more between these two schools. And I look for Alabama to kind of play it safe, not run, not try to show too much film of these young guys too early, but I think it'll be a very easy, very um, one-sided game for them. Bama 35, Miami 14. Now we move to the game of the week. Very likely could be the game of the year. Georgia and Clemson. Now, given my fanhood and my ties. I don't think you're going to be surprised by who I pick in this game, but I still want to have very solid reasons as to how I come to that conclusion. I don't want to just be the homer that pulls the momentum card or something along those lines. 
The stat that sticks out to me the most from Clemson last year is they were 11th in the ACC in rushing last year. Now, you can talk to me all you want about how passing-driven college football is and how it's all about throwing the ball all over the field and making plays happen in the air. At the end of the day, whether it's in pass protection or it's in the running game, football is won in the trenches, and the running game very much dictates your ability to win in the trenches. You have an 11th-ranked team in their in a very weak conference in rushing, and then you have a team that's been top three in run rushing yards per game for Georgia the last three seasons in a row. That's not a good combination for a team if you don't want to end up being one-dimensional by the time the second half rolls around. And I know they got this kid, DJ, who I hear is pretty good. He's only 6'5 and a monster physically and has an absolute cannon for an arm. But regardless of how talented a quarterback is, I don't think it's very complimentary for him to be in a one-dimensional offense, and I just see that happening. Now, I am willing to admit that there is kind of a similar thing with Georgia. There's been a little bit of uncertainty as to what the starting offensive line is going to look like, even more so with the fact that Kirby has decided to show a little gamesmanship and hasn't released the depth chart yet. We've seen some projections on what it could possibly be, but we don't know for sure what the offensive line is going to be. And then you've got a tremendous front four for Clemson. Brian Brees is an absolute beast and has the that kind of single-handed game-wrecking ability that you look to see in a modern defensive tackle. But I think with the sheer number of running backs that Georgia has, with all with complementary skill sets, and just the depth that Georgia has at the offensive line instead of it being it's it's not a matter of there's injuries and you're trying to figure out who's the guy you can patch in it's these guys are all so talented that we don't know who's going to be the one that's going to best help us to win at this point i think it's somewhat of a good problem to have but i th- i think it's going to be a game where the team that's Obviously, you're going to see a big play here and there. Both of these quarterbacks are way too talented for that to not be the case. But I think there's going to be those third and fours, third and three type situations where it's maybe you're in the red zone you're, or you're backed up against your own end zone. You're Basically, you're in a situation where you're, you don't really want to throw the ball. You kind of have to run it. And I'd give Georgia the edge in that situation just because of the depth at running back. And the other edge, kind of, if you want to go more of the, the, the passing route, Justin Ross is a great player. He's going to be a very tremendous player for them this season after coming back from a spinal fusion surgery. I think dealing with any, any guy that can come back from that situation, I have very high regards for and a lot of respect. But I think just the, the, even with the injury to George Pickens, Georgia has so many guys to throw the ball to at the tight end position, at the running back position, at the receiver position. You have speed receivers. 
like Arian Smith, like Jermaine Burton. You have route technicians like Kiaris Jackson. You have big physical receivers like Brock Bowers and John Fitzpatrick. And you have guys that it's 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 just the the versatility and just the possibilities that Todd Monken has to work with with a full camp to install his offense rather than starting in a COVID season. He talked about how that's really allowed them to really open open up the playbook and hit you in so many different ways. But the final reason I give Georgia the edge with a score of 28 to 24 is, as I mentioned, with that one-dimensional possibility with the lack of running game that Clemson had last year, you're going to see Adam Anderson on the field more. But I think with some of the tape that is out there in games like the Auburn game, Teams are going to key in on him kind of, I don't want to say in an Aaron Donald way, he's definitely not an Aaron Donald type player, but that opens the door for, I think, Nolan Smith to be the beneficiary on the other end of the equation and maybe even a Trayvon Walker on the other end of the equation to be successful. So... There's just too much depth for Georgia, too many weapons, too many pass rushers, too many running backs. I got to give Georgia the edge, 28 to 24, and they start off their season on the right foot. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Hopeless Sports Mated Podcast. Make sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at TaylorBell222 to get show updates and sports-related hot takes. And as always, make sure to like and share the podcast on whichever platform you listen to it.